everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We have got a lot of really great info for you today, really important stuff that you need to learn about. We're going to be talking about a very serious Microsoft uh, Edge browser vulnerability that you need to know about. We're going to talk about some really creepy new technology uh, for used in forging people's voices. We're going to talk about an interesting Google Docs phishing scam that turned out to be not really that big of a deal, but it imports things to come that could be pretty bad. We're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about an Intel chip bug that has been around for something like eight years that is really bad. And uh, what you can do about that, whether it's going to affect you and what that means for the future. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up with uh, one or two user questions if I've got some time. And again, remember, you can send me those questions at kerryparkeratamericaoutloud.com. You can find the email address on the uh, podcast website. Please, I know you've got questions. Send me those questions. And I'll be happy to answer them here on the air. If you've got it, I'm sure someone else has the exact same question. So first up, Microsoft has um, acknowledged that there is a vulnerability, a pretty nasty vulnerability in their Microsoft Edge browser. Now, this is the new web browser that replaced Internet Explorer, first available, I believe, in Windows 10. And I think it's a default browser in Windows 10. So unless you've changed it and you've got a Windows 10 machine, that is the browser you've been using. Now, what this vulnerability does is it allows somebody, uh, uh, a hacker that has a malicious website, uh, or perhaps has somehow managed to sneak in uh, an advertisement on a website uh, that is malicious, to basically steal your cookies and your password just by going to this website. Web browsers are supposed to guard against this. It's uh, they're they're not supposed to allow access from what we call third-party sites to first-party information. So if I go to Google's website or uh, Amazon or whatever the case may be, I'm going to Netflix, and on that website uh, there's an advertisement to something else, that advertisement is really brought in from a different website. So behind the scenes, even though you're on Netflix's website, there are certain portions of that web page that are actually sourced from someplace else. Netflix didn't do it. They rented that space out to some advertising agency or whatever, and that advertising agency is filling that space, kind of like a billboard on your on your web page. That that the the owner that the owner of the web page doesn't really that they don't own what's on the billboard they own the billboard so they rent out the billboard and some other company takes care of putting the ads on that on that thing well if it, what's supposed to what web browsers are supposed to do is is block off uh, the information for in this case let's say it's Netflix.com your your Netflix.com um, uh, login information any any information um, from from Netflix from that third party, they should not be able to cross cross the streams in uh, Ghostbuster speak. They, they should not be able to go across that barrier to get at the other data. Um, unfortunately, uh, there's a bug in, in, the, in the Edge browser that does not properly block and keep separated these two different aspects of the web pages you might be on. So that allows these third parties actually to, to steal some passwords from uh, and information uh, on your accounts. Uh, in fact, it's not just the web page you're on. It's it's any other cookies and any other accounts that are that, that you visited. So let's say you have, if I've logged into Twitter, uh, and then I go off to some other web page that one of these malicious web pages, it potentially can go and get either my passwords and or my cookies uh, uh, from my Twitter account and allow them to log into my Twitter account. So that's as we say, bad. And note that one of the things uh, that I talk about often on this podcast to mitigate. Uh, these sorts of concerns, uh, two-factor authentication, 
which means that not only do you log into a website with your password, you also usually have to give it some other piece of information like a PIN code or a one-time PIN code or a rolling time PIN code to log in. Uh, this completely bypasses that um, because once you've logged into one of these websites, they basically they give you this thing they call a token. And it's like a special kind of a cookie. Um, and, and a cookie is just a little bit of data. It's got a funny name. But all that really is is it means that there's a little bit of data that that, that, that website drops on your computer so that when you come back to that website, it can say, hey, give, give me, if I left any data here before, give me that data back so I can remember something that I wanted to remember about you. And in a lot of cases, what that memory is, is that you've already logged in. So basically, when you do the dance of giving you your password and perhaps two-factor authentication pin, whatever the case may be, and you go through this thing of initially logging in, the result of that usually is that server gives you securely this little token, this little thing, little badge, little thing that you're supposed to hold on to and then present back to them. When you go back to that website, say, see, I've already logged in. We don't have to do this again. And they say, oh, okay, that's right. I gave you that token. That token looks correct. So, you know, I'll let you use it. Um, but... With this sort of uh, with this sort of a, um, a browser attack, uh, these other websites are not supposed to be able to see and access those special tokens. Only the original site, like in let's say Twitter, is supposed to be able to access Twitter's tokens and cookies and all that stuff, and passwords that may be stored. Unfortunately, this bug in the Microsoft Edge browser that we're talking about is broken and allows that to happen. So, what do you do? Well, unfortunately, right now the <laughs> the only thing you can do is just not use the Microsoft Edge browser. Um, it's that bad. Um, if you know, if you if you're not using it, you should be fine. Um, I don't believe there's any known exploits out there with this, but you can bet that as soon as this news got out, that the hackers are out there doing it immediately. So just because they don't they don't know of any hackers currently using it doesn't mean that with literally within 24 hours there won't be others. So. In the meantime, you know, Microsoft has what they call Patch Tuesday, uh, which is I think it's the second Tuesday of every month is when they do their big software update releases where they fix all their bugs uh, that they know about. Um, so uh, Patch Tuesday um, actually will be the Tuesday right before this uh, episode airs. Um, so hopefully uh, in that Patch Tuesday, Microsoft will have a fix for this for their Edge browser. In the meantime, uh, use a different browser. Uh, I would not recommend Internet Explorer. I would recommend Firefox personally. Chrome is pretty secure. It has, oh, let's say privacy concerns. <laughs> so personally, I use Firefox. Uh, I would recommend Firefox. But just for, from a security standpoint, uh, Google Chrome is also another good browser. Or Apple Safari. Uh, any of those will be just fine. Just don't use Microsoft Edge at least until we get this fixed. Um, for what it's worth, uh, many things I've heard about Microsoft's Edge browser are actually pretty good. Um, it's still kind of a fledgling browser. It's still kind of uh, coming up to speed. Um, it's a brand that basically wiped the slate and started over because Internet Explorer was just horrible um, for many, many reasons. <laughs> for many, many reasons. Uh, I would not ever use Internet Explorer. I would always use something else. Um, uh, but I have heard some good things about Microsoft Edge, and I think it's got some promise. Uh, in the meantime, however, personally, I would just use Firefox um, uh, or perhaps Google Chrome. Or if you're on a Mac, you can use uh, Safari course you're on a Mac then you don't have edge in the first place and it's not an issue and now for our next story story number two this week very creepy uh, there's a new technology called Lyrebird that's L-Y-R-E-B-I-R-D that if you feed it enough examples enough recorded examples or I guess presumably if you talk into the system long enough and it gets enough examples of your voice and what your voice sounds like 
can impersonate your voice with arbitrary text. In other words, and, and I'm sure this has been in some movie somewhere, some spy movie, where they record somebody saying something, and then they are able to, I guess in the spy movies, what they usually do is they take snippets, right? They try to take little bits of actual actual recordings from what somebody said and try to piece them together in a natural sounding way to make them say what they want to say. This is not that. This is actually listening to the way someone talks and the way they say their words, uh, the sound of their voice, the intonations that they use, the, the all the different aspects that make someone's voice recognizable, listens to it long enough to the point where you can then type text into this thing and it will read that text back as that person. And honestly, it sounds pretty darn believable and it's kind of scary. I'm going to play a snippet here and hope hope there's no copyright issues. Uh, but you can get to this yourself on the web, so uh, I'm hoping that they don't mind me sharing this with you. Take a listen to this. This is an artificially generated voice by Liarbird. It does not convey the opinion of Donald Trump. I am Donald Trump. This is very, very important. Let me tell you. This year, I am coming to the iClear conference. I have heard many, many things about this conference. It's a tremendous conference. I would like to meet the best researchers who wants to see me. I love you all. It's going to be huge. Believe me. So let's all take a minute to really think about what this means. If we can reliably impersonate any other voice, what would that allow a nefarious person to do? If you hear the, the recording, obviously it's not quite perfect, but this is just going to get better. And my guess is it's going to get better quickly. And it's, first of all, you could think, okay, so someone now has to go to the trouble of you know creating this thing and, and, and sending it out and trying to, what are they going to do with that? Well, what happens when this technology is so good that it works in real time? Meaning that I could potentially call up your bank uh, and know if I know that you know the teller there and say, oh, hey, you know, it's Carrie. Yeah, hi, how's it going? You having a good day? Yeah, you remember, you know, I needed to do something. Well, I, you know, I need you to do me a favor, you know, help me you know, reset my password or, you know, I just need you to send a check to so-and-so or whatever and they can convince them that you're you, you know, maybe, you know, hopefully bank procedures are better than that. But I mean, Think of all the mischief you could get up to if you could, in real time, call anybody and pretend to be anybody else. You just need enough recordings of somebody to learn how they talk so that this program can turn around and mimic that and pretend to be them. So what this really brings up for me and what's something I want to broaden this discussion to is the notion of biometric information as a form of authentication. Now, it's a lot of big words, but really what I'm saying there is people, people hate passwords, and rightly so. And we've talked about this on the podcast in the past and why there's a need for things like a password manager. And in that podcast, we also talked about biometrics and why, why is that not the golden grail here or the holy grail here? Why is that not the thing that solves all the problems? There's all of a sudden, now you've got something that proves that you are who you say you are without having to remember something or being able to forget it or have someone else steal it. Well... We just saw a way in which someone could steal what is essentially you, your biometric information. So let's talk about a couple aspects of that. So fingerprints is another thing that people think, oh, fingerprint reader, that's great. I can't lose my finger. I, well, 
technically you can, and that's one of the problems with this. If you become disfigured, God forbid, uh, and and you, your fingerprint is no longer you, then you can no longer prove that you are yourself. But people tend to not think about that. They think, oh, well, God, it's, it's got to be better than passwords because we all hate passwords, and, you know, and rightly so. Uh, unfortunately, it really is currently, today, the most secure thing that we have uh, and the best method we have for, for authentication, especially when you throw in two-factor authentication. Now, two-factor two authentication means that there, you need more than one thing. So usually the first thing is you know, a user ID and a password. Uh, the next thing is usually some sort of a PIN code. That can be something that is you know, sent to you via text message, or you might have a special app on your phone that has a rolling number that's time-based that you know, when you log in, depending on what, on what time it is, it has like a code that works for 30 seconds. And if you've set it up properly, when you log into Google, let's say, uh, and you've got Google Authenticator app on your phone, uh, you, give them, you log into a computer that you haven't logged in from before. Maybe it's at a friend's house, maybe it's at a cyber cafe, and Google challenges you and says, I don't recognize this computer. Let, you know, not only do you need to give me your na- username and password, you need to give me that PIN code, that rolling time PIN code. So you bring up your app, you look at the code, you type it in, you enter it, and Google says, okay, now we're good. Uh, you've given me enough extra info that we're going to trust you and, and consider this to be um, uh, a trusted thing. So what that is, why we call that two-factor authentication is that there were two factors involved. There's a password and there's a PIN. And uh, as you may recall, if you listen to the earlier episode, what, what we usually think of when we're talking about authenticating, proving to somebody else who you are, uh, there's at least three different types of aspects. There's something you know, there's something you are, or there's something that you have. Uh, something you know would be something like a, um, a password. That's something that you've memorized or have written down somewhere. That's something you know. Uh, something that you are is biometric information. That's an iris scan or a fingerprint or a voice print. Uh, facial recognition, things like that. Something that you are uh, that we use to recognize and say, oh, that must be Carrie. Uh, so, and then there's something that you have. And that's usually where most of our two-factor authentication comes in. Uh, sometimes we're using, especially on phones, we're using fingerprint readers, which is something that you are as a second, uh, sometimes a primary authentication factor. Um, but something that you have like a cell phone. So if I, a lot of the way, a lot of these things work, and I'm going to tell you in a minute why this is also not good is they will send you a one-time pin code to enter. So, uh, you want to log into Twitter and you log in with your username and password and, and they don't recognize this computer. So they said, we're going to send you, we're going to text you a code because we know that you've registered your mobile phone with us. And therefore you, you are in possession of that phone. So not only did you have to know your password, but you have to be in possession of this person's phone, uh, your phone. Okay, so Carrie, you've logged in as Carrie. Now I'm going to send a text message to what I know is Carrie's cell phone, and I'm going to assume that Carrie is in possession of Carrie's cell phone. So when he gets that text message, he gets the PIN, he enters that PIN. Now not only has he proved that he knows his password, but he's proved that he's in possession of his phone, something he has. So honestly, right now, that is the most secure type of authentication that we can do today that's not completely onerous, really too hard. So it's still a pain in the butt, but it's very doable. Most, almost everybody today has got a smartphone. And if you're like me, you carry that with you 24-7. Everywhere you go, you have that with you. So that works out pretty well today. Biometric stuff, uh, something you are, is a different story. And that's why this Liarbird thing really shows us how it, it, it breaks down as a method, certainly as a primary method of, of authentication. 
the other thing we need to think about when you're talking about something you are, uh, biometrics as a form of authentication, is that you can't really change these things unless you're willing to disfigure yourself. Your fingerprint is your fingerprint. Your voice, your face, your iris pattern, these things are all you, and therefore they're always, forever, until you die, associated with you. Those are things you can't change. If, if I want to be anonymous, I really can't be anonymous because the, all these things are uniquely associated with me. And as soon as somebody knows that that is Carrie Parker's fingerprint, everywhere that fingerprint is left, Carrie Parker has been there. Um, so it takes away your ability to be anonymous and, allow, and you can't change. If, if, if I want to, if someone um, has managed to copy my fingerprint, I can't change my fingerprint. Uh, now you could try using a different finger because every finger has got a different print, but you get my point. Um, a couple cases in points. First of all, there's this lyre bird. Now, if you're thinking about identifying somebody based on recognizing their voice, that's, you should basically not trust that anymore because we, we have just shown that we've got technology good enough to potentially fool a lot of people. Um, the other thing to think about is fingerprints. A lot of people think of fingerprints and think, well, you know, I have to be somewhere to leave a fingerprint for someone to copy and they've got to get a full fingerprint and they've got to go through some rigmarole you know, to make a viable copy of my fingerprint. It's actually not as hard as you think from a physical fingerprint. It's, it doesn't take a whole lot of high tech to do that. Um, but it's worse than that. Uh, if you recall, and uh, back in 2015, the office of personnel management in the U S government was hacked and they had stolen from them 5.6 million digitized fingerprints. So these government personnel as probably part of their, application process and maybe part of security clearance or whatever it was that they go through. Part of their process was to collect digitized fingerprints of these employees. And those fingerprints were stored on computers and computers are hackable and they were hacked. So these 5.6 million people are basically now screwed for life <laughs> with respect to authenticating with their fingerprint because those fingerprints are now loose and on the web and, and, and can now be used by somebody else. So two big negatives with biometrics as a primary form of, of authentication. One, you really can't be anonymous. And two, they actually can be stolen and or forged. Um, so, you know, we can think about those as perhaps a secondary or even tertiary, uh, a third method uh, for identifying someone. And a lot of super high-tech applications will do that. The, it won't be the primary, but it'll be one of many ways that they um, authenticate you. You know, that's fine. It's one extra factor. But we need to not think of it as the primary go-to method for authenticating ourselves, at least in the, in the most secure scenarios. I'm actually fine uh, with using fingerprint readers on your smartphones. Uh, in most cases, that's fine. Someone would actually have to physically have your phone and then somehow trick it into um, uh, using your fingerprint to get in it. That That's fine. Uh, but for a lot of other applications, passwords. Uh, unfortunately, even though we hate them, they're still the way to go. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. You'll find a whole host of shows and a great lineup back at AmericaOutloud.com. And also get the apps. We now stream 24-7 on Android and Apple. Just look for America Out Loud Talk Radio. Next up, we've got a story about a phishing attack 
or a sort of phishing attack uh, using Google Docs and Gmail. Now, uh, of course, phishing, if you recall, is kind of what it sounds like when you're trying to fish for information, you're trying to get information out of somebody, uh, except in this case, it's the hacking type of phishing. So uh, they spell it in a weird, in a weird hacker way, uh, P-H-I-S-I-N-G, uh, instead of F-I-S-H-I-N-G. And what phishing attacks generally are, as you recall, uh, is some hackers trying to get you to cough up some information that they can use. Uh, often it's uh, credentials like you know username and password. Sometimes it's credit card information. Sometimes it's you know social security or address or other information that they may then use to try to impersonate you and commit identity fraud. Regardless, it, it, it's a it's a broad name for a technique that is usually by email or malicious web pages. Uh, trying to fool you into giving up uh, information to somebody who's going to use that information for nefarious purposes. So last week we had a case where somebody, turns out it appears to be maybe a college student uh, doing a research project, though that has not been 100% confirmed, sent uh, an email out. Uh, and what this email would look like, if you got, the, if you got this, uh, it would look like an email probably from somebody that you know saying that they wanted to share a, a Google Doc with you. And uh, at the bottom of that email, there'd be a, a big red button that says Open in Docs. Uh, looks harmless enough, looks very Google-ish. So you click on this Open in Docs, and it takes you to what basically is the Google App Permissions page. And what it says is, hey, you know, um, I need to get access to your Google Docs. And you think, well, okay, someone sent me a doc. That kind of makes sense. It's a Google Doc, and so I probably need to give this uh, person permission. So you click this and give them permission. And sadly, at this point, what happens is that that same email just gets sent to everybody else that you've ever emailed in Gmail. <laughs> so what happened there was that what it was really doing was it was acting as what's called a, um, a third-party app and an application. And Google and Twitter and Facebook and some of these other guys allow this. And we're going to talk about uh, that in just a minute, because this is very pervasive. Uh, but what this basically tricked you into doing was saying, I want you to give full permission to this third party application. Uh, and they called themselves Google Docs, which sounds great. It's something that sounds like something you want to do. Uh, but in reality, what you've done is you've given this third party access to your Google account. And now what they do in this case, thankfully, not much What they <laughs> they just kind of perpetuate themselves. They they, they take that information, and now that you've given them access to your Google account, they look up everybody that you know, all your Google contacts, all your Gmail contacts, and then they turn right around and send that email off to them from you. So what you would see then is your friends would now get the same email, except it would be appear to be from you now, saying, hey, I want to share this doc with you. Click this button, and the story goes on. So as you can probably guess, this would spread pretty quickly. Um, but also Google being who they are, uh, this was brought to their attention very quickly and they shut this down, uh, in pretty short order. So this particular problem, uh, uh, should be gone now. And so far from all we can tell, all this thing did was propagate itself. So if you fell victim to this, all you really ended up doing was sending a bunch of emails that got sent to a bunch of other people. Now, it could have been much worse because because what you did in that in that in that crucial second step when when you when you clicked on the button that says open in docs what that did is that took you to a google permissions page which allows you to grant access to third parties um 
to do things with your Google account. And there are plenty of legitimate reasons why you might want to do this. Um, there are plenty of reasons I'm going to recommend that you don't. But uh, what you're basically saying is, yes, I, you know, I want this other application to have access to my Google stuff. Let's say I want to have some other special you know, group account or calendaring account that I want to have access to my Google account. For instance, uh, my wife has a business where she schedules stuff online and she wants that to just interact directly with her Google calendar. So she has a scheduling service that she uses for her clients and that scheduling service has access to her Google calendar. She has granted that access. So now when uh, one of her clients wants to schedule uh, an appointment with her, it automatically gets put gets put onto her Google Calendar. It makes perfect sense. That's a, that's a case where you have a legitimate reason where you want to allow this access uh, from some other third party to your Google account. And if it's done properly, um, you've only given them access, for instance, to your calendar. And maybe maybe you've only given them the ability to add things and not delete things or change things. Uh, permissions can come in different flavors. In this particular case, with this particular Google Docs phishing uh, scam, you, I believe, have given them at least access to all your contacts. And in that permission step, that's where that's where things went awry. Uh, posing as a Google Doc and trying to trick you into thinking that you need to give it permissions in order to view the doc is when you gave this third party actually access to all your contacts and they went ahead and emailed everybody you knew uh, with the same kind of an email scam. Now, again, it turns out that it looks like that's all this thing did. Uh, so if that's true and that holds up, then it was really basically harmless. And what it was, was a proof of concept to show you how badly these things could be. Um, you know, they could have emailed all your friends with a button that took them to something very malicious, uh, including malware, virus, uh, ransomware, whatever the case may be. Um, it could have been much, much worse. So I guess, thankfully, what we what we have here is, is, a, is a learning opportunity uh, to realize that these sort of things can happen. And, and I'm sure Google... Google knew that things these things could happen. They've actually they were the one who implemented this whole scheme in the first place to allow this third party access. What they need to do now is they need to be thinking very hard about how to make sure that nobody can trick you into giving out that access. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to do. Uh, so it's a cat and mouse game. That, that it's a convenience factor. They want people to have this feature where you can allow access to your Google accounts. For example, like the scheduling app that I just told you about. Uh, or maybe it's an email app. Maybe you want some other service you have to be able to automatically email uh, your clients uh, or your uh, maybe you've got a newsletter and you want to send those out. So you want to grant access to your Gmail account for that reason. There are plenty of reasons why you'd want to do this, which is why they implemented it. But if you're not careful and you grant access to the wrong thing, then that that whatever that third party is you granted access to can now do whatever you could have done. Um, and that could be bad. One thing to note uh, with these kind of special permissions, it's, it uses a technology that we call OAuth. That's O-A-U-T-H, or uh, which is short for open authentication. And a lot of uh, the big companies use this. Uh, you could, you've certainly seen this with Google and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, one of the ways you may have seen this is you go to a website that you've never been to, and they instead of you could either create an account for yourself on that page, or you can log in with Facebook or log in with Twitter. Uh, or log in with Google. And 
that means that you now don't have to come up with a new username and password and all that kind of thing. And But what you've done there is you've created a relationship between this site. Let's say it's, I don't know, mycoolsite.com. And mycoolsite.com comes up and says, hey, you can either create an account, you know, create a new username and password, or you can just log in with Facebook. So you say, oh, gosh, I don't, I don't want to create yet another damn thing that I have to remember. So you know what? I'm just going to hit the easy button here. And I'm going to say sign in with Facebook. And so what you then do is is you click on this button and then you basically go off to Facebook and Facebook says mycoolsite.com, you know, wants to allow you access and wants to know if you are who you say you are. Do you want to allow this? And you say yes. And now that site basically takes Google, Facebook's word for it and says, okay, you know who he is and you've got information on this guy if I need to get a hold of him uh, and, you know, things like email address and things like that will be shared. And now you can log into mycoolsite.com and not have to worry about creating a, a separate account for that. But there are downsides to this, and we need to talk about those, and you need to understand what this really means. So there's are two things here that you need to realize of what's going on. By doing this, first of all, you are really giving this other site, potentially, permissions to access other parts of your account. Let's say it's Facebook. What you may actually end up doing is allowing that site to post things onto your Facebook timeline without asking you. That may be part of the permissions that they requested and you gave when you allowed them to uh, sign in with Facebook. So, for instance, let's say it's, um, I don't know, some some website that allows you to play music. And, and this website all of a sudden is posting to your Facebook timeline, hey, Carrie really likes this song. This is what he's listening to right now. Um, that might seem harmless, but perhaps that's something <laughs> you don't want people to know either because you don't want to just be randomly sending out to people what you're listening to all the time. Cause you think it's too much information to share, or maybe it's really stuff you don't want them to know. Maybe you're listening to some sort of a self-help book. Uh, <laughs> and now you're broadcasting to all your friends on Facebook that you're, you know, you're trying to learn how to lose weight or, uh, learn how to stop smoking or whatever the case may be. Um, so first of all, there's that aspect. What you're really doing here is you're not you're not just bypassing creating an account. You're actually setting up a relationship between Facebook and this other website where they can share information. And they perhaps can even do things on your behalf. You've given them some level of permission to interact with your Facebook account. So there's that. Something you should definitely consider when you're doing that. The other thing you need to realize is that you're also setting this up for Facebook tracking. And, and I'm not, you know, it's, it's not just Facebook. I'm just talking about that as my example here. But it's really, is there any of these other accounts uh, that you might use this technique for logging in? Twitter, Facebook, I think Amazon does this as well. Uh, Google, of course, does this. Not only are you setting up a relationship between these websites and and the other ones, so let's, again, let's go back to Twitter as our, as, or Facebook as our example. When you log in with Facebook, Facebook now knows every time you interact with that website. And let's face it, Facebook and Twitter and Google and all these other guys, what where their money is, these they are not Google is not an email company. Google's not a calendar company. Um, Facebook is not really a social media company. These are all advertising companies. That's where they make their money. So the way they make more money is to know more and more about you. And so the more they can know about you, the more they can customize their ads and they can sell that advertising stuff to other people. And they build this dossier on you that has all sorts of information that these advertisers just love to know. Now, you can hope and pray that these companies are guarding that information with their lives and A, are not giving out too much information about you specifically 
to these other customers. Hopefully what they're telling them is, okay, we've got a you know, white female who's roughly 45 years old, who makes about this much money, is heterosexual, and then probably has kids. You know, <laughs> that's actually just a small taste of the kind of information that they would make available. What you're hoping they're not going to say is that this is Jane Doe. Uh, that they're not actually giving up the farm and saying, we know we're going to tell you exactly who this person is. Hopefully they're just giving general and uh, aggregate demographics, but you don't know. The other thing you've got to worry about is this information is now being held somewhere. And as we can, as we all know, at this point, we better know nothing is hundred percent safe. So even if Facebook and Google and all these guys have got the best of intentions, and are keeping this information locked down and only sharing the bare minimum with these advertisers to, to, to allow them to target those ads to you and make sure that you know baby formula goes to these people while hot rods goes to this these other people and that sort of thing, they can be hacked. That information exists somewhere. And perhaps also from law enforcement perspective, that information might be subpoenable uh, or, or reachable by the warrant, or if you're really unlucky, maybe not even with that. Um, they, uh, a lot of the issue I have with what's going on today in our, in our country, in the, in the United States and going around the world is these companies giving up access to these things without a warrant anyway. So that's getting a little deep, but my point is, is that these things that look very simple and very convenient, uh, and you might not be thinking about why you're doing these things and what the real, uh, outcome of these things are can have some pretty deep consequences. So my recommendation, uh, don't use them. Uh, I, I don't. Whenever there's an option to sign in with Facebook or sign in with Twitter or whatever the case may be, I've got accounts with those with those companies. But I create a brand new account. I use my password manager so I don't have to worry about coming up with a new password and remembering it. Um, I give them my email and I tell it generate password. And I, you know, 15 to 20 characters of complete gibberish that will be saved for the, by LastPass on my, on my behalf. And I will never have to remember again. And it, it, it keeps these things separate. It means that that new website that I just went to does not get permissions uh, to do things with my other account by linking those accounts. And it means that the, the person that I would, the account I would have linked with can't use that as just more tracking information. Now, there's one more aspect to this that I want to be sure to tell you, because on this podcast, not only do I want to educate you, on what's going on, what's really happening behind the covers when you're doing these things that look so benign and so simple and so convenient. <laughs> I want to educate you about what's really what the real implications of these things are, and then I've got to tell you how you can go back and change your mind. Uh, and in most cases, at least in this case, you certainly can. So uh, I'm going to provide some links on the show notes. Go to the website for this particular show, and you'll go down to the further reading section. You'll see some links on this. Uh, a couple articles that telling you how to go and kind of clean these things up. Um, it'll, uh, I'll provide a link for both Google or for Google, Twitter, and Facebook, which are the big offenders in, in this case. Um, and you may have in the past, and you may not realize this or may have forgotten, because it's so easy to do. They make this so easy to do uh, for you to grant access to these various applications. And we're talking things like games too, right? Uh, like Facebook, you know, Farmville, whatever all these old games were. A lot of them ask for these kind of permissions. And in the background, what that means is you've basically set up an affiliation with these groups and they're now getting other information from Facebook about you as well. So if these guys get hacked, uh, then potentially they could use those same permissions to do some, some bad things. So what you want to do is you want to clean house. You want to go back to review all the permissions that you've given over time. And some of them, I'm, I'm going to guarantee some of these things you might not have even realized that you had given something permission. 
because uh, you probably didn't know that that's what was really happening behind the covers, and that's why I am here. That's why I'm telling you these things. So you need to uh, go to the website, and you'll check out some of these links, or you could just try Googling this and or using DuckDuckGo, perhaps, uh, um, for your searching, something that doesn't track you, and search for things like uh, app permissions, APP, uh, app or application permissions, uh, with Twitter, Facebook, and Google. Uh, and there are, there are elements of your profile on all three of those accounts that you can go to and review everybody that you've given permissions to all the third party services and applications and games or whatever, whatever, uh, that you have knowingly or unknowingly given access to over the years and review those and clean house, take out all the ones that you know, you don't need anymore. Uh, those are all just opportunities for leaking privacy information and potentially getting hacked. So if you're not actively using those things, go and remove them. Go find the links on the website uh, or, again, search for them uh, and go clean up those app permissions. Next up, we've got a story about Intel uh, and a really nasty chip bug that they found in, in, in their processing chips. So Intel, if you um, aren't aware, is a huge company that makes the processors, the computer brains, in just about every computer out there today. Now, there are some rivals like AMD uh, that, that make some of the uh, computer chips, and there are smaller devices like iPads and, and things like that that don't tend to use Intel chips. But if you've got a regular laptop or a PC-type computer, even, an, even a Mac, uh, a recent Mac, um, they use Intel chips for their brains. And while this particular bug that was found is pretty nasty. Um, it doesn't affect most of you, I'm guessing, uh, but I'm going to tell you who it does affect, and, and we'll talk about that. But the implications are what I really want to talk about. So let's talk about the news story first. So Intel found this bug, or, or someone made them aware of this bug that was in their computer chips. Uh, it goes back about nine years. It's been out there a really long time. Uh, now, this bug basically is in a computer within a computer. Intel, uh, because they sell a lot of computers to really big companies, uh, and companies that own lots of computers, um, they f decided that they needed some sort of a foolproof mechanism by which IT people, um, information technology folks, could control these computers en masse. They want to be able to configure and update and do special things with all these computers. Uh, and so what they did is they thought, well, you know, what we should do here is we need to put a back door on all these computers. Now, of course, backdoor's got a lot of bad connotations, so I don't necessarily mean this in a bad way. But what this, it is a backdoor. What, <laughs> the backdoor is a backdoor. What they did is they built this little computer chip, a little computer processor, a little computer brain, a CPU, uh, kind of next to the real one. And they built it all together into a single chip thing. So when you get one, you automatically get the other. Now, this was mostly in what they call their vPro line of chips. So this is for, you know, computer servers or, or, or computers that are in a big corporation or things like that, because these are the situations where you're going to want, you know, a small group of people to be able to control and update and manage a whole lot of these computers at one time easily. So they created this, this, this special chip, um, and it goes by various names. So I'm going to rattle these off just in case that this does happen to affect some of you. If you've got a smaller medium business, uh, if you have, for whatever reason, some server type or some enter enterprise grade computers um, uh, in your network, uh, then this may apply to you. So uh, the technologies that, that are at stake here are the ones that are affected are called Active Management Technology, or AMT. Uh, there's also one called Intel Standard Manageability, or ISM, and another one called Small Business Technology, or SBT. 
Um, that's probably Greek to you, but but just in case it's not, I want to throw that out there just in case. Uh, and these are generally, like I said, these are what we call enterprise or business PCs. Um, and you probably would have had to pay more and do something special to get these sort of things. They're, they're not the kind of things you go into Best Buy and buy for yourself and take home. Uh, and even so, uh, most of this technology, in my understanding, uh, this technology is not enabled by default. So even if you, for some reason, bought one of these computers that had this capability, I don't believe that it's on by default. But you might check your your computer specs if you think it might be one of those kind of computers uh, and look to see if it has one of those three technologies that I just mentioned. And again, your regular consumer PCs, and even though your Macintosh computers have been using Intel chips in them for quite a while, this feature is not in those regular old off-the-shelf uh, consumer uh, computer products. So don't, if you have those, you're, you're almost surely safe. So again, what, what Intel decided to do here is they built this little, this little module, this little extra computer on a computer uh, into their chip design so that this, this computer chip could listen to the network uh, on its own, whether the computer, whether regular computer was on or, uh, or whether regular computer was booted or not, it has to be, at least be powered up. Um, but even if the regular computer was kind of in sleep mode or whatever, this little other little separate smaller computer, the special management computer, would be alive and listening for these commands. And there's a bug. And, and, and as as much as Intel tried to keep this under wraps, they they it's a smart company. It's a big company with a lot of really great engineers. I'm sure they put a lot of thought into this. They tried to make it secure, um, but they failed. There was there's there's something they did that that allowed these computers, if these features were on the chip, and if these features were enabled, for hackers to basically take over control of these computers. I'll provide a link to the article just in case you think you need to know. If you run a small or medium business, you know, and you think it might be affected, I've posted a link to the to the Intel vulnerability uh, website that tells you, you know, what you need to do. Uh, the main thing you need to do is you need to be looking for updates, uh, software updates from Intel. Uh, these are like really low level things. So these are like firmware, what we call firmware which is like the, the little micro software code that runs uh, really on, on these little tiny processor things. Um, uh, you need to be looking for Intel updates. And apparently they do have updates and they're working with their, their various motherboard manufacturers and computer manufacturers to, to let you know. The other thing that this kind of points out again, and I think I made this point last week, is register your products. Uh, I know that's probably going to get you a lot of junk mail you don't want. Maybe you can try to uncheck the boxes that say, you know, send me marketing materials. But you really need to be registering your products so that when things like this come up, they can reach you and let you know that there's a critical security vulnerability and what to do about it. So now that we've talked about the news story, I want to use this to talk about this kind of concept in general and why I think we need to rethink how we do these sorts of things. So Intel had the best of intentions here. They wanted to have a method by which um, their big customers, they pay them lots of money, can manage their systems remotely. Uh, many different computers at once. It's just not, it doesn't scale, as we say, for a human being to have to go visit every computer in the company to make changes. They need to be able to do these things remotely. Uh, and there's various ways you can do that. Microsoft has so, these kind of things built into its operating systems as well. Uh, so that uh, you can push out policy things uh, and, and whatnot uh, from you know, from one location to multiple computers and control multiple computers. Intel did this as well at their level, at the chip level, uh, by putting in a back door. Um, they they're smart. They've got a lot of engineers. They they did their best to make this rock solid, secure, 
and unhackable. And yet they still failed in a pretty spectacular way from what I'm reading. Uh, this is this was a pretty nasty bug. And what I think we need to all be thinking about is, as, as citizens, as consumers, as people who buy these and support um, buy these computers and support these companies is pushing back on this and saying part of the problem here is that I believe is that this was a proprietary system. So it was super, super secret. They didn't let any, they, they don't tell anybody what this thing really does just at the bare minimum. Uh, we just kind of know it's there and we trust that they have made this super locked down. And you got to realize that it's not just even a matter of, you know, one-time security. They've got to be able to update this device securely as well. So they need to be able to get software updates to this device that they can guarantee come only from them so that nobody else can rewrite this software uh, and somehow get that new software on that device and get it running uh, running in a way that's trusted. Um, they've tried encrypting this stuff. They've tried doing all sorts of things to obfuscate, which is a big word for kind of, you know, make it hard to figure out how to do these things and try to keep it super secret so that nobody would know to try to keep this stuff safe. My point is that in reality today, the way to really make these things safe is to make them open. Uh, you may have heard of the term open source software or open source. Um, and there are companies or there are groups out there trying to write open source software that would actually replace this Intel software, among other things. Their point, and my point, is the only way to make these things secure and open uh, is to make them reviewable, to make the source code, the software that runs on these things available for review uh, by others. Because no matter how good you are, you're going to make a mistake. And the more people that can review this code, the better. So while I understand that certainly from a, uh, an intellectual property perspective, um, that companies like Intel uh, want these to be closely guarded secrets. They don't want other people to do it because then it may allow people to, I don't know, do things with their products that they don't want to allow. The flip side of that is what happened here. And that is that if you, you know, if you keep it secret, if you keep it to yourself, if you make it a closed system, you're not probably vetting that software enough. And in today's environment where hackers and, and government agencies and foreign government agencies are constantly looking for chinks in the armor. They're looking for holes. They're looking for ways to get in and compromise our systems, either for espionage, um, sealing corporate secrets, or just, you know, stealing money or getting up to getting up to mischief. The, the, the more closed these systems are, the, the less secure they're going to be. So anyway, my little soapbox there, my little editorial, my little editorial for the week uh, about open source software and how that applies to this nasty, nasty Intel bug. All right, that wraps up uh, our news of the week with a little bit of my commentary thrown in there for good measure. And now we come to the mailbag segment, the Q&A the, the segment at the end of the show that I, where I'll try to answer as many of your questions as I can. Uh, and uh, actually, today's, this week's questions come from the class that I'm teaching, but I thought it's long since time that I answered this question. The question is, or the questions are, what is a firewall? Do I need one? And how do I know if it's working? So great questions. And this podcast, of course, is called Firewalls Don't Stop Dragon. So it's probably uh, long since overdue that, that I answered this question. So first of all, what is a firewall? Firewalls 
the original term was actually something I think built into cars or maybe uh, uh, other systems in general to, to act as a barrier between you and something hot. Uh, in the internet world, the, a firewall is meant to keep out the bad guys. Uh, in that sense, what it really is, it's sort of like a one-way valve. So whereas computers or devices within your home network, uh, that could be your laptop, your computer, uh, your Fire TV, your Amazon uh, Echo, uh, your, uh, your, your smartphones, whatever, that are connected to the internet, when they want to go make a request from something out on the internet, they send a request out and the response comes back. So a firewall is, is there to let those things out and make sure that when they come back, they get sent to the right place and allow those responses to come back. However, as a one-way valve to the internet, they block unsolicited requests coming into your network, which is a really, really good thing for security because there are literally uh, probably millions, certainly hundreds of thousands of, of, of bad computers out there on the internet today programmed to do nothing more than to search the internet for vulnerabilities, which is to say, to try to find devices that are connected to the internet that are vulnerable. And the firewall is one of the most important pieces of software uh, that we have that protects most of us today and most of us don't even know about it. So the good thing is you don't really need to get one anymore. Uh, back in the old days, um, it wasn't built into the things we have. So if you really wanted this, you would have to go buy one. And frankly, back in the old days, there just weren't that many threats. So it wasn't that big of a deal. So in the old days, people would actually, you know, if they really wanted to lock down their security, they would actually buy a physical box that, that they did this function, uh, this firewall function. Today, however, Firewalls are built into your home routers. That is your home Wi-Fi router. Uh, that there's a there's almost guaranteed to be a firewall built into that and running automatically, and as well as most of your computers today, your Windows PCs and your Mac, um, uh, your Macintosh, your Apple Macintosh computers have a software firewall that's built into the operating system that is also running. So multiple layers of protection uh, going on for your for your computers and your network. And so, generally speaking, you don't need to go get one. You probably almost surely already have one. Um, so in that sense, that's good. And, and not only do you have it, it's probably running by default. Now, the bigger question is, how do I know if it's working? Uh, and that's a really tough question, actually. Um, but fortunately, there is an easy answer. Uh, you can probe your system from outside using a tool called Shields Up. And this is written by one of my favorite guys on the planet named Steve Gibson, a security guy, a security guru that uh, I've been following for many, many years, big influence on me. Uh, he has created all sorts of great products, uh, including hard drive uh, recovery utilities called Spinrite. That's his, his bread and butter. He has a product. He has a, a free tool that he has created on his uh, servers called Shields Up uh, in reference to the old Star Trek, you know, incoming Klingons, Shields Up, because <laughs> he's a big sci-fi fan. And uh, it, what it will do if when you give it permission, you click the button, uh, you have to read a little little disclaimer says by clicking this button, you're authorizing me to basically probe your network. And what this will do is it will probe your system. It, it, it knows who you are because it's it, it, it's seen because you've made the request on the web page. It knows your IP address, which is the basically the address of your computer on the Internet. So it knows who you are. Well, it knows where your computer resides on the Internet. And so, therefore, it can train its sites on your computer, your system, and probe your, your network um, and see if it finds any vulnerabilities. Now, you, you need to realize that it's actually probing multiple layers of things. So uh, not only do you have a firewall on your router and a firewall on your computer, 
but your internet service provider is almost surely blocking some of this, some of this stuff as well. So you're, you're really testing all the layers of your security all at once. Uh, and what it's doing is it's going through and looking at your computer IP address and poking little holes, trying to find holes in the network uh, where it could get an unsolicited request into your computer. Uh, and if this Shields Up program comes back and says you're clean, then you're good to go. Now, if it does find some some quote-unquote holes in your network, they may be there for a reason. There may be some, we call them ports. So you've got your address, and then at that address, you've got thousands of ports that are available that, that could be open for these requests. And that's, that's how these requests come and go. So uh, it's looking for common ports. There are certain port numbers, uh, like for email and telnet and some of these other kind of things that, that, are, that use common ports. It's going to check those first, and then if you give it permission, it will actually check the whole range, and that can take some time. But it's it's probing each one of these ports to see if there's any response. The best response actually is no response. We call that stealth mode. So it says, hello, and it gets nothing back. Sometimes what it'll do is say, hello, and it'll say, no, thank you. <laughs> it'll actually actively come back and say, I'm not listening. Um, what you really want, honestly, the best response is a stealth response where you say, hello, it doesn't even, it doesn't even come back to you. It doesn't even acknowledge that it exists. Anyway, Shields Up is a great little tool. It's all free. Uh, if you really want to just kind of learn something, uh, my guess is your firewall is, is probably in pretty good shape. But if you'd like to just verify that, uh, you could use a tool like Shields Up. And what Shields Up will do, uh, like I said, is it will basically go through all these ports on your IP address and see if there's any any of those ports that are open, uh, which could potentially mean uh, that that you've got a vulnerability. It doesn't necessarily uh, mean that you're vulnerable, but it's something that you should look at and say, hmm, why is that port open? And make sure that you might you might have to do something to close that port. And we are once again at the end of another edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening to the show. Uh, hopefully I taught you about some things today and entertained you along the way. Uh, be sure to check out the American Out Loud website for the full show info and, of course, links to uh, follow-up helpful info that I told you about during the show. Uh, you can also find links there to my Twitter feed, uh, my book, and the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons website. On the Twitter feed, I do my best to send out more urgent information. So if you'd like to stay up to date on that kind of thing, you might try the Twitter feed. Uh, also on the website, you can find my blog, which I don't do nearly often enough, but, but I'm trying to do more often. Uh, but one of the cool things you can do there is sign up for my weekly newsletter. Uh, I will not give your information to anybody else. This is just for you. Uh, once a week uh, on Sunday night, I send out a, a, little, short e a little short newsletter email uh, with one tip. Uh, usually uh, about some topic that's either happened recently or something that I find uh, people need information on. So uh, it's short and sweet and to the point, and then there's links to uh, follow up if you want more information. Now, if you like to listen to the show radio style, you probably already know about the America Out Loud network. Uh, I'm on from 1 to 3 p.m. You can use the America Out Loud app, which you can download from the website. You can listen to that on iHeartRadio, AHA Radio, TuneIn Radio, uh, and the like, and of course, the app itself. Cybersecurity and online privacy and making aware on the internet is complicated stuff. I know it is. I know you've got questions about how that works and how to stay safe out there. So send me those questions at Parker at americaoutloud.com. That's C-A-R-E-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R -E -E at americaoutloud.com. I will collect your questions, and every so often uh, I will answer uh, your questions at the end of the show. If you've got the question, I'm sure somebody else has the same question. So let's all help educate each other on this stuff. Send me those questions. And last but not least, of course, uh, you can also check out my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, how this whole thing got started, and, of course, the uh, 
the impetus for this show. You can find that on my website as well. You can find a link to it on the America Out Loud website. It's, I don't know, 350 or some odd pages with well over 100 tips, complete with pictures and step-by-step instructions for how to make your mobile devices and your computers, laptops and web browsers and all that stuff as safe as they can possibly, uh, safe as they can possibly be, including stuff for your kids as well. So check that out on Amazon.com. And until next week, everybody, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Stay safe out there, everybody. See you next week.